So, for something uh, rather different, um, Dr. Chapman. Thank you, thank you very much. Well, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. I only hope that Tony and his colleagues, in the wake of this uh, rather uh, larger audience than expected, don't blame me for luring people into the dangerous waters of the history of science from the purity of the laboratories. Um, but I've always argued, of course, I think it's a crucial thing, that for scientists to learn about the broader culture of their discipline is very, very important. And of course, we have to bear in mind that science is a culture, it's related to a culture in the same way that music or philosophy or any other disciplines are. And whilst, of course, clearly it has its own coherent agenda within itself, it nonetheless has these broader connections to wider things. I was saying, in fact, to Tony as we were walking over, that I always think it's important to remind, especially Oxford students, and of course teachers and people visiting here, that there was serious science, and I said this slowly and clearly, there was serious science being done in this university 400 years before they were doing it in a certain Fenland establishment, I won't mention. <laughs> we were doing serious work, not in chemistry, it's true, but in astronomy, in mathematics, in number theory, and aspects of cosmology, as early as about 1220 in Oxford. Friar Bacon, of course, who was, of course, himself a man interested in chemical activities, <coughs> was one of the leading ones. But we have others as well, Thomas Bradwardine, later became Archbishop of Canterbury, and a number of others who were serious figures looking at astronomy, cosmology. People like John of Gadsden, a name that perhaps doesn't grab many people. John of Gadsden was said to be the first man to teach systematic scientific medicine in this university. At least scientific and systematic in the classical context as understood in the 13th century. Now, I know these two particularly too because some years ago uh, a large academic encyclopedia asked me to write the two articles on science in Oxford and Cambridge universities from circa 1250 to the present day. And I looked particularly at when certain things are starting here in Oxford. So I think it's crucial to bear in mind that we do have an immensely rich scientific tradition in Oxford. And whilst only jokingly, not in Cambridge, because of course I have the greatest respect for Cambridge and I have a lot of connections there myself. On the other hand, we have to bear in mind we must never let Cambridge steal the whole cake, because Oxford has done more than its bit over the centuries. Now, I'm not here today just to talk about science, but to talk particularly about chemistry and the importance of chemistry in the 17th century to the 19th. I wouldn't class myself as really competent to go beyond about 1900. And I am, of course, a historian, primarily with an astronomical background uh, professionally, and so therefore I wouldn't really want to get into very modern chemistry or 20th century chemistry. But to say today, from more or less about 1650, into the Victorian period. Now, first of all, let's start by saying how chemistry, they literally call it chemistry, was understood in this period. Where does chemistry come from as a discipline? Well, it's hard to say. Um, there are all sorts of stories, many of them legendary, out of the ancient world. One of them arguing that, rather interestingly enough, the first chemist to come onto record was a woman, Miriam, the sister of Moses. Miriam, of course, makes her appearance in the book of Genesis, where centuries and centuries later, legend has it that Miriam learned chemical arts from the Egyptian priests in the days when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. 
And legend said that she was the first chemist. The first to learn to mix colours, do all sorts of things such as plating bits of copper with gold, the earlier arts, the what were called chemistry. That's legendary. But you're finding references to Miriam in the 15th and 16th centuries. On the other hand, when you start to find something more coherently chemical, well, we know figures like Theosphrastus, who was around in around 300 AD in the, in the Greek world. He himself definitely writes on the properties of metals, what they do at different temperatures, colour changes in furnaces, things of that sort. And the beginnings of an interest in what substance is. Yet right through the medieval period, in fact, from the classical and the medieval worlds, and this applies both in the West and also in the Arab world, which took largely over its chemical interests from the Greeks and had a very, very similar set of conceptual um, approaches to chemistry, it was rooted in Aristotle and a number of Greek writers. Rooted in the idea that nature was made of four substances, earth, air, fire and water. Or in other words, hotness, dryness, moistness and coldness. And the way in which they congealed to each other, separated from each other, loved each other or hated each other. Yes, it was a very, very value-laden cosmology. For instance, water hated fire for very obvious reasons. The way in which they congelated together formed every substance we know, from rock to human flesh to everything else. And therefore the art of the chemist was understanding this congelation. People often think of medieval alchemists, such as, of course, our very own in Oxford, Roger Bacon, Fry Bacon, circa 1210 to 1290, with a very, very good age for the Middle Ages. He himself, his writings on chemical substances in a book called the Ars Magna, the great art, the great art of optics, chemistry, and all sorts of things, still speaks of this tradition of congelation. The study of the chemist is not to make new discoveries. I think this is a big difference. It's not to make new discoveries. It's to look at how the world has been formed by God. So therefore we have nature, natura, and hence it's the chemist's job to explicate natura, not necessarily to make new discoveries. Now also to, I mentioned the Arab world, you have a very, very similar tradition grows up there. Figures like Al-Hazam, Averroes, and a number of others, particularly in Cairo, Damascus, that, uh, that, that sort of axis in the Middle East, from about 900 to 1400, they wrote and worked on similar substance, on similar subjects. The Arabs, by tradition, hard to say or well, prove it or not, but tradition <coughs> invented modern fractional distillation. The idea that you could take an encoded mix of probably some organic stuff, put it in an alembic with its swan neck flask, and at different temperatures, get things coming off it. They, of course, discover all kinds of things this way, and by the discovery and by the distillation of grape juice, fermented grape juice, call a particular colourless, um, rather fascinating liquid that comes off with the Arab alcohol, or of course we have our own word for it, it's alcohol, and the realisation of what the ancients called spirit of wine actually contained an active specific chemical ingredient. So therefore there is a rich Arab tradition at the same time. In we're talking here 1,300 AD. There is also quite a lot of swapping over culture. For instance, Chaucer is familiar with Arab alchemical and medical writers. For instance, he mentioned a number of them by name. 
For instance, he mentions Averroes in the Palmer's Tale. We often forget that Chaucer actually is himself by a legend, an Oxford graduate, who by legend knew of many of these figures. In the Pardoner's Tale, which is a pretty, uh, a pretty nasty tale, actually, if someone's going out to commit murder, and I can't think that they will get you on the 10 o'clock news, but they've gone out to commit murder, and they were trying to distill a particular loathsome poison. And Averroes had written on poisons. In fact, one of the standard texts for centuries on poisons. And as Chaucer says, as Averroes doth say in his canoon. Of course, this is Averroes' canon, Averroes' rule of medicine and substances. So this is even well known in Chaucer's England, 1370s, 1380s. So there's a rich tradition there. I'm only bearing in mind that Bacon and also Chaucer were Oxford figures. That's again has something going back a long way into the past. But this is a conservative chemical tradition. With new techniques coming in, such as distillation, the improvement of old techniques, such as the invention of the reverberatory furnace, which is a small brick beehive-like furnace sometimes about no more than a couple of feet across the melting gold, which could get very, very intense temperatures by having a sort of barrel-vaulted roof inside, so that the charcoal flames came up, licked the inside of the roof, and then came down on what they called the work. The work, of course, being the name for the substance that was being heated, so you have 360-degree heating. These sort of things came in, but the basic concepts of matter didn't change. And where I think Oxford is so very significant in the 17th century, in the period of the founding of the Royal Society, and especially, of course, the founding of that group that met in Wadham in the 1650s, the Oxford Philosophical Club, and not being unduly patriotic here because I'm a Wadham man myself, not that, simply this is what the record tells us. The group that started to meet there started to have queries and doubts about the ideas of there being four substances in nature. Earth, air, fire, and water. The idea being, and they didn't just come up with it, you have people like Otto von Gierich in Magdeburg coming up with similar ideas, and of course Paracelsus a century early in Switzerland, saying that not only was there earth, air, fire, and water, there were also three principles in chemistry mercury, sulfur, and salt, volatility, fixity, and inflammability. But of course, what you still find in it is wonderfully vague conceptual terms. Inflammability, combustibility, fixity. The question is, how do you translate these concepts to something which you might call of a more reliable chemical character? Well, there is one colossal problem all of these people have. Whether it's classical Greek, whether it's Arab, whether it's 16th century European. There is no coherent concept of chemical purity. And that, I think, is fundamental. If you cannot have a basic, what we would now call a reagent, some concept of a pure substance, where do you go? You chase your tail. And it's why when we read the writings of 2,000 years of alchemical writing, which often is so debased in more certain bad writers, where they just said they were after the philosopher's stone, which is simply not true, they're trying to get to the heart of substance. But if you have no concept of what is purity, no concept of a benchmark in nature. You chase your tail endlessly. And this is what happens. And I would suggest it's in 1650s Oxford, in a serious way, they try to break out of that circle. And they do it from a number of new experimental methods and ingenious interpretations of reactions. And here, of course, one comes to the friends of Dr. Wilkins, 
Warden of Wadham, who started eating the Warden's lodging in Wadham somewhere in the early part of 1649 in that group whom they come to call the Oxford Philosophical Club, the body which in 1660 becomes the Royal Society. This club included Robert Boyle, perhaps the most famous chemist of the day. The young Robert Hooke, student at Christ, or more correctly, undergraduate at Christchurch. I actually have known quite a gender on Hooke at the moment because I'm in the final checking of my notes and references of a biography on him, which is being done by the Institute of Physics coming out later on this year. Christopher Wren, famous as an architect, held chair of astronomy in this university, but mad keen on experimenting on anything. Fire, dogs, blood. He actually provided the dog on at least one experiment to try to determine what happened when you blew air into the lungs of a living creature. He supposed that the dog didn't survive. You also have Thomas Willis in Christchurch. Thomas Willis, who is himself one of the greatest early chemical practitioners of the age, and the author of several books on what we would now call medicinal chemistry, where he was trying to analyse, by the techniques of the day, bodily substances, and was concerned with the idea that all things in medicine were controlled by one chemical principle, and this was fermentation. That the healthy body was in a state of regular fermentation, and when, of course, you become feverish, a very, very common condition in all of the, the pre-bacterial days, then you get hot. He thought this was your blood fermenting within you. Also, Willis analyzed urine. One of the very, very few things that you could try to actually gauge what was going on inside the human body in those days. And his treatise on urine, 1659, there's a copy of your science library, gives you an idea, very, very vague choice today, what actually he's trying to do. But he comes up with one corking discovery. He realizes that diabetics have sweet tasting urine. First person to realize that, I won't like to tell you how he discovered it. <laughs> but all doctors in those days sniffed, poured, and tasted virtually everything they could try. He also mentions another, perhaps more polite way of discovering that fact that if you took diabetic urine on a hot summer's day, left it on a dish outside, it would attract flies. And of course, everybody knew flies loved anything sweet. So, this is the kind of stuff being experimented with in the early Royal Society, or the early club that becomes the Royal Society. Also, too, briefly, Oxford, and the way, and many ways, the man who got the chemistry side going again here is Sir William Petty. William Petty came to Oxford in 1647, in the period of the civil wars, as effectively a placement for Oliver Cromwell's government. He became what was called a prelector in anatomy. He was an anatomist primarily. But he had been taught the new techniques of chemistry at Lyman, where he had qualified as a doctor, and brought these new techniques of analysis <coughs> into England, and begins this business of trying to break nature open by distillation, especially. But really, I think the way forward properly, outside this tail-chasing business, lies with Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke. And I want to say where they are so significant and where they break this uh, circularity. In the 1640s, Evangelista Torricelli, who was one of the pupils of Galileo, discovered that the air would only support 30 feet of water in a column. Tube of water, open at the bottom, air pressure would support 30 feet of water. 
He found also that as mercury was much, much denser than water, it would support 30 Italian inches of mercury. And of course, in the pre-metric system, the foot and the inch were widespread across Europe, being Roman measures, and effectively the same as 30 of our inches of mercury, because the Italian inch and the English inch was only basically characteristically different. This then means that the barometer, people start to ask, what is air? And at first, they thought the change in the level of the barometer was caused by the moon, because the philosopher René Descartes suggested that as astronomical bodies moved, they did through some great swirling vortices of a wonderfully philosophically vague substance called the ether. And in consequence, therefore, when the moon was swirling closer to the earth, the ether should be a bit sort of more packed up. And Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke, and Christopher Wren made a barometer in Beam Hall at the bottom of High School. Now, let me tell you exactly where that is. That is the place where now you have that plaque on the wall saying Robert Hooke and Robert Boyle discovered here the living cell, which I may say is wrong. They didn't discover the living cell there, but they did conduct these crucial experiments on air. It was, of course, in no way connected with youth, who has expanded since up the high. What it was was a large house owned by John Cross. John Cross was a sort of entrepreneur, hotelier, businessman in 1650s and 60s Oxford. He was a very successful one. In fact, some years ago, I had a part two student working on John Cross's business activities. He left over £4,000 when he died in 1680. Most Oxford businessmen left between four and five hundred. So you're getting some idea. It was a pretty sharp move. Boyle rents this particular premise from him and starts to conduct experiments in the laboratory. He employs the young Robert Hooke, who had also worked with, uh, um, with Willis, just around the corner in Burton Street, and they start to do these crucial experiments on mercury-filled tubes, what they called canes of mercury, glass canes with mercury inside. They found that they could find no correlation whatsoever with the changes in the mercury level and the position of the moon. They were trying to test Descartes' theory of vortices. What they did discover, however, is that the changes in the mercury level related directly to weather. And it seemed to be when what we would now call a pressure system was coming in, the mercury went down. When it started to rain, the mercury went up. This tells you something about the air. They start to ask if, if the air will do this. Is the air elastic? Will it expand and contract? Because, of course, the ancient concept of air as one of the four elements, which I think was a natural homogeneous thing. What they're suggesting by 1656 is that the air has what they called physico-mechanical properties. In other words, physical and mechanical. It responds to physical compression and expansion. This then leads to another idea. Can we make a piece of apparatus that will rarefy air? This leads to the building of the first effective vacuum pump. Not the first. Otto von Gierig in Magdeburg in Germany had made the earliest rarefying engine. But in fact, you could do no real experiments with it. It was a, very, it was a lead lined wooden barrel. And therefore, you could suck the air out of this barrel. And of course, the barrel of the area, open the stuff up, back it goes. But that's limited what you can do experimentally. 
What in fact Hook designs for Boyle is an apparatus which has a 15-inch diameter, thick-blown glass sphere. It has at the top a door, a sort of central circular door, where you can get inside it, assemble an experiment, <coughs> screw it down at the top, and underneath it, it has about an 18-inch brass cylinder on a rack. You can have a plunger that will then suck the air out of that pump. You can, of course, devise an experiment, set it up in the apparatus, and simply <coughs> see what happens. This is what they meant primarily by the experimental philosophy. Stick it in and see what happens. And this was first published in 1661. Some experiments, physical and mechanical, touching on the spring of air. What I would consider the beginning of serious studies of chemistry and physics. Both of them seen together in Oxford. What they find is that, first of all, if you put a bell inside this apparatus, and you have the bell hanging on a piece of string, shake it, you can't hit the bell ringing. Clearly, air is needed for the transport of sound. But also, do that experiment does something even more shocking. It challenges Aristotle. Aristotle would say, there can be no such things as a vacuum. Because a vacuum is a logical contradiction. The world is full. Ergo, you can have no bits of nothingness in a full world. But the vacuum is some nothingness in a full world. What, therefore, are its experimental characteristics? Well, first of all, sound plastic. Then you put a variety of living creatures into it. Mice, birds, small reptiles, all diamond. Bearing in mind that these men are working immediately in the wake of Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood, and all the questions that are being asked about exactly what happens in the lungs when the blood works. For instance, small animals, <coughs> rats and things of this sort, die in the air. You take a viper, however, must be fun getting a viper into an air pump, got a viper into the air pump, screwed it down, evacuated it, the snake dies. Let the air back in, the snake revives half an hour later. Could it be that reptiles are cold-blooded, and somehow the air impregnates itself into their blood in a different way? Now this is the way their imagination is running. They also put a cat into the air pump. And they do this, well they do this on many occasions, this was a sort of pièce de resistance experiment. And when the Royal Society were meeting in London, they did it in the presence of the Danish ambassador in 1662. And one wit who wrote a poem called The Ballad of Gresham College, because that's where they met in London, had this to say. To the Danish agent, late was shown that where no air is, there's no breath. A glass this secret did make known, wherein a cat was put to death. Out of the vessel, the air being screwed, puss died, and ne'er so much as mewed. <laughs> it's not Milton, it's not Shakespeare, but it certainly tells you that cats die in airports. <laughs> Now this is not just an experiment, it's actually posing all kinds of questions about what is air, how is it elastic, and what happens in the body with it. They also discovered too that not only do things die in vacuo, but flames go out. Candles are extinguished in vacuo. And John Mayer, also in Wadham, does a series of experiments in the mid-1660s 
where he is the first person to ever have things under, under a glass bell jar in water. And he is trying to determine what percentage of the air will sustain fire and will sustain life. He finds when he puts a mouse inside this apparatus under a little cage that can't run away, then the mouse dies when the water has risen to a certain point in the glass. Clearly the mouse has <coughs> taken something out of the air. He does the same thing with a candle and finds that the candle goes out at roughly speaking, the same point where the water volumetrically has risen up inside the jar. This suggests that there is some property, I don't use the word element, some property in the air which sustains burning and breathing, and a bigger property by volume that sustains neither. Then we might say, aha, well, yes, he's discovered the oxygen, CO2, nitrogen connection. That's jumping the gun. They've discovered that the air is not a simple substance, and that's crucial. That's done just down the road. Also, too, Robert Hooke is doing extensive experiments with saltpeter, or nitre, as they call it, KNO3. Now, one of the experiments he and Boyle and their chums have been doing is to put some gunpowder in an air pump and fire it. They found, of course, this was difficult because getting the ignition going. In fact, Hooke at one stage devises a small pocket pistol on a wooden frame inside the air pump. Uh, when you cock it, put some powder in the flash pan, and the apparatus already had a little screw, an airtight screw that you could turn. So you could tie a piece of string around the trigger, the other around this little catch, turn it, and it would go off. They often found the gunpowder would ignite, but it would fizzle. It wouldn't bang they also were able to ignite it as well. These early experiments were done in the winter of 1659-60 with a low weak sun. By the time they repeated the experiments in summer, they used a large burning glass and focused the rays on the gunpowder and then were able to fire the gunpowder again to a fizzle. Now they were saying, why is it that we can't light a candle in the air pump? You put a candle there, focus the sun's rays on it, you can't relight the candle. But we can fire gunpowder. They knew, of course, that the, that the fiery ingredient, as they called it, of gunpowder, was saltpeter, KNO3. They then asked the question, is part of this fieriness of the air trapped in the crystals of saltpeter? It's the first tentative recognition that you can have a gas connected to a solid. And hence what happens when you have enough heat to excite the reaction, then you will have this whatever it is releasing, then getting the saltpeter, then getting the sulfur going, and making the gunpowder fizzle. Now, Boyle and Hooke then devised an ingenious experiment. And I once tried this at the Royal Institution, and I have to admit, I filled the Royal Institution lecture with thick, impenetrable friends. And this comes from one of Boyle's experiments. And it's concerned with trying to revivify dead saltpeter. What he might boil does is this. He takes a crucible on a small stove and just heats it and toasts it. And then starts dropping into it fresh pieces of wood. Dropping the nice bits of wood, and of course it hits the soft Peter, bang, off it goes, and it flares. You keep doing it, and you'll eventually exhaust the soft Peter. And hence you'll just have charred wood sitting on the third surface doing nothing. Boyle then said he took the detritus. What they called in the language of the 17th century the caput mortem, 
the, literally the dead head, the leftovers of the reaction. They then put the Catholic mortar into water, washed it, then doused it in nitric acid, made it recrystallize, as they said, shoot, you know, because the, the crystals began to form again. Then you could repeat the experiment. And another one would start boiling up new bits of water, new bits of wood, and burning new bits of wood. What was it you were exchanging? Was there something in the air that you could have in a liquid, nitric acid, that you could use to reinvigorate an earth, saltpeter, that would somehow give back its fieriness or its combustibility? Now, they started to develop a model for combustion, which indeed was not what we would call combustion today. They called it dissolution. That things that were inflammable at certain temperatures remained, such as wood fruit, remained stable because they were not yet warm enough to be eaten. On the other hand, in air, there is this combustive stuff which, when the thing gets warm enough, will eat it. They use an alchemical term for this, a menstruum. A menstruum in medieval alchemy was a solvent. The air, says Hook, is a menstruum. And when the wood is warm enough, it will then devour it and tear it apart. So in other words, you have not what we think of today quite as a chemical reaction, but rather a voracious eating of one thing by another at high temperature. But that has gone on a long, long way from talking about four simple elements. They have already by this time, 1675, got to a stage of recognising that the air itself is an elastic medium. They're not certain why parts of it are fiery and why are not, and whether it's what we would now call allotropic. It may change under certain circumstances, such as barometric pressure, but they know part of the air will dissolve wood and part of the air won't dissolve wood. They also know, too, that this part of the air that will dissolve wood and will sustain the flame also is found in arterial blood. This is another major discovery. <coughs> they come to discover, first of all, if you take a pot of fresh slaughterhouse arterial blood for a freshly slaughtered animal, which of course looks perfectly straightforward and of course it's glowing nice and bright red, put it in your air pump, evacuate the air pump, the blood will suddenly boil. What will happen is that the gas will be released from it, it will boil, and then what's left after that reaction is a darker colour. They next start to ask, in respiration, is this principle in the air now impregnated into the blood? Now they haven't, I'm not denying, they haven't yet discovered the role of oxygen in respiration. I'm not jumping so far ahead. But they've jumped to at least the conclusion that there is a gas exchange in something in the blood. Now this as well leads to chemico-medical experiments, such as the effect of what can you give somebody by injection. Now, if you can inject a medicinal substance into the body, it should act quicker than if you give it orally. Now this starts with people like William Petty, uh, Christopher Wren, who actually provides the first dog we're told for this experiment, and tantalizing, they don't tell us where they did it, but they do mention the garden, 
And as it was mostly done at Oxford, and as the back of Wadham was where a lot of that stuff was being done, I suspect this experiment was performed in one of Wadham's gardens. It was in 1657. Christopher Wren had provided the dock. They wanted to try an experiment on whether an intravenous substance, in accordance with Harvey's theory of circulation of the blood, if you delivered a material into the bloodstream, would it act quicker than giving it oil? They took a mixture of half a pint of sack wine, into which they had mixed a fair slug of crude opium, and of course realised that if you had given this to the dog, well, it may have taken two, three, four minutes to walk with a big, bingish dog, it would just have this mastiff that for this fairly large dog keeled over. They then took a syringe, loaded it into the syringe. Of course, they didn't have hypodermic needles in those days, they used a very, very fine goose quill, opened the dog's, this must be a fairly dangerous business with a big, hefty dog, opened its neck and into its crural vein inserted a shot of this mixture. The dog went bang. This was a clear indication that an intravenous injection worked very rapidly because it delivered the narcotic to the brain virtually instantly. They had no real applications for this in terms of medicine, but what it's doing is looking at the connection between breathing, burning, chemical action, and human and animal body responses to air, liquids, and so on. Now this is something of what this group in Oxford is doing at this period. Period 1650, 1675. And I would argue it's laying the foundations for a great, great deal of subsequent medical, chemical experimentation. And it's certainly beginning to seriously dint the idea that there are only four elements. If you can change conditions, you can change fiery properties in liquids to fiery properties in solid substances such as nitric acid to uh, saltpetre. Well, this is challenging traditional theory. And it's why, therefore, I think that within half a mile of where we are now sitting could be regarded as one of the great birthplaces of modern chemistry. And I think it's important that Oxford students, visiting teachers and others should know that. If you think that modern college gardens, Bean Hall, part of another part of Unif, down High Street, Willis's house, Postmaster's Hall, facing Merton Gate, what mm -hmm. of these places were where they were doing all of these experiments? Now, this active Oxford period is over by about 1680. The last one to be seriously active is Martin Lister, also in Wadham, and of course, by this period, most of them have moved to London. The restoration of monarchy in 1660 had seen a lot of the energy of Oxford experimental science move to London. We have to bear in mind too that many of these experimentalists were deeply devout men. Many of them also were also in Anglican holy orders. And with the re-establishment of the Church of England hierarchy, several of them start to receive patronage. And hence, of course, no move out of direct scientific work, while people like Seth Ward, part of the group, becomes Bishop of Exeter, and so on. And so the, the connection between their religious faith and their science is an intimate one, and it also now means that by the time the Royal Society is active by the 1660s, you actually have seven bishops in that society who are coming along to what dogs have injections and things of this sort, going back to their diocese, and that intimate mixture of religion and science, you must never ever underplay in their culture. 
But anyway, most of the really active part of early chemical and medical experimentation is done by 1680, 1690. Now, you do, however, have one figure who produces a formidable book. He's not part of this early tradition. He is generationally, a generation a bit later. This is Dr. Robert Plott. Now, Robert Plott is immortalized in one particular book, I'm sure familiar to Oxonians, and that is A Natural History of Oxfordshire. It's a work which is in a genre of the time, going back to people like Camden in the early Elizabethan period, a survey of a county. And you look at everything in that county, you look at all sorts of, sort of trade, waterways, rivers, caves. <coughs> um, there's a wonderful chapter two in History of Oxfordshire called Of Men and Women, which describes human peculiarities, birth of Siamese twins. We're told also that there was a woman of Bicester who grew with a seven-inch horn out of the front of her head like a unicorn. Um, this kind of rag by curiosa. Yet, Plot mentions a number of chapters which are explicitly chemical. One is on earths. The other is on waters. Now, waters and earths are instantly of a chemical connection. We have to bear in mind yet, chemists don't yet have the periodic table. That lies into the 19th century. They don't even have what you would regard as the basis of simple elements, sodium, iron, and things of this sort. And they're often deeply perplexed when they see mineral substances in the ground. For instance, they recognize that there are certain generic common ones, such as rock salt and things of that sort. But then when you start to talk about marls, gravels, shales, things of this sort, well, they just simply describe it what it is. A Silesian earth, a gravel from Tuscany, a salt from Wales. And these kind of things are on lab shelves at that table. In fact, a lot of these people probably have virtually identical chemicals drawn from Scotland or from Bavaria or all over the shelf, and not known that they were different, were different colours, they were in different allotropic forms. Now, one man who's very active in this respect is John Ward. Now, John Ward was incredibly enough vicar of Stratford upon Avon. But he was also an avid chemical and medical experimentalist. His notebooks are, in fact, not strictly in the Bodleian's document. They're in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. But as I had students some years ago working on John Ward's chemical diaries, I was able to make sure that the university procured a film strip copy of these diaries. So yes, John Ward's diaries are in the Bodleian. What is fascinating about them is what he will experiment on. Not only is he experimenting on Stratford, but he had chemical chums in Oxford. And about two months every year, he used to take his holiday in Oxford. So he'd come and live in Oxford, and be in labs, and working around with things, and going around seeing people's patients. And, I mean, the thing that today we find quite absurd. But his diaries are full of this kind of support on earths, waters, of men and women, strange plants, peculiar harvests, and so on. And it's not for nothing. When Plot comes to write his history of Oxfordshire, he draws on some of Ward's stuff. Now let me say some of the things about waters that you find in Plot's history of Oxfordshire. For instance, they were fascinated about why you had mineral waters. Why certain waters, most obviously those above, were obviously nauseatingly sulfurous, but were thought to be good for you. And other waters seem to taste like water. In fact, 
And Plot tells us that the best and purest water in Oxford came from the pump in the yard of the Golden Cross Inn, which, of course, is now part of a pizza palace and so on. If you go down there, I presume you will hit a strata that will give you pretty pure water. There's a lot of clay and gravel in Oxford, and that will, of course, fill the water. He says the foulest water in the county was that of Henley. And in Henley, they often, surprisingly, surprisingly, have difficulty brewing beer because it wouldn't ferment properly, and it was impossible to wash clothes in Henley because the water was such that you could never get a lather. Now, this kind of topographic knowledge of waters across the county is interesting. Also, too, Plot is interested in medicine, and at this period, you can never separate medicine and chemistry. The two are utterly intimately bound. Why chemicals in water were so crucial is because you had a theory in medicine at this period that certain waters were good for certain diseases. And hence doctors, chemists, and any individual concerned with natural phenomena wanted to know what particular water bubbling out of the ground in which place would be good for which disease. Not only was this good, solid, humane, it was also profitable. You could establish a spa. Bath, Tunbridge, Cheltenham, Harrogate were all coming into being at this time because they had waters good for certain diseases. Now this again to make sense of what these were shabby beet or iron-bearing waters or they were copper waters or they were sulfurous waters or whatever depends crucially on their theory of disease. You've got to bear in mind 17th, 18th century people have no concept of bacterial infection. Nor also did they think of illness in terms of systemic organic damage. They have an idea that the body is naturally healthy until something knocks it off. And hence the doctor's job is to notice what has knocked off what part of you, whether it's your head or your guts or your bones or whatever. They have no real concept of cancer as a systemic disease. They have no understanding at all of the function of the heart, beyond the idea that it simply pumps blood through the body. And hence, they saw disease of all kinds as blockages of some sort. This is why purging is so fundamental in the whole of 17th and 18th and early 19th century medical practice. You've got to know a skilled doctor knows what particular bit of you is blocked and how to shift it. And this is why, of course, when you come across references to being physicked at this period, the term of being under medical treatment, it was shifting blockage. Now, spring waters were thought to be absolute corking forces for unblocking blockages. And different types of springs would unblock different kinds of blockages. Now, some of them were virtually portmanteau unblockers. The sulfurous waters of Bath would cure anything from advanced pulmonary tuberculosis to six weeks of constipation. Anything at Bath would clearly work, at least in theory. And in consequence, therefore, you were constantly trying to classify waters for their therapeutic problems. And so hence, when you get Plot and others of his ilk writing on the waters of a county, this is what they're doing. But you may ask, as a chemist, how do you know what is in a water? How do you interpret this stuff bubbling up under a spring? Well, Plot has a surefire, uh, wonderfully uh, simplistic mode of analysis. You take a common garden shovel, 
You stick it in a fire and you get it red hot. You then hold the garden shovel. You have somebody coming with a bucket full of the approved water, douse it on the garden shovel, of course there's a lot of hissing and giving off of steam, and then the shrewd analyst sticks his nose into the steam and sniffs. Sulfur, lead, coal, and so on. And you then classify that water in that way. There also came to be a number of other tests. Boyle tried to develop one or two others. Things that, for instance, copper waters would, if you then put a piece of burnished steel into copper waters, would leave a slightly coppery deposition. Things of that sort. But it was as crude as that. But why there is this great concern, the chemistry of waters at this period is entirely medicinal. Earth's also, I'll look at from a similar point of view. But also we have to bear in mind too, Earth's have another purpose, and this is purely commercial. The discovery, for instance, that the clay of Staffordshire became extremely good for making imitation Chinese porcelain became a major, major godsend to the Midlands. The founding of the pottery industry in the Midlands in the 18th century came from this relentless search for earths. Bearing in mind, it was Chinese porcelain was immensely treasured. It was also got from the other side of the world at colossal price. These virtuosi, as the scientists call themselves, start asking the question, are there such earths in England? Can we make similar porcelain to the Chinese? And hence, of course, when people like Josiah Wedgwood start to develop their own Staffordshire pottery, it's part of this analysis of earths. And we know also through Wedgwood's own laboratory books on how he mixed different earths, the iron pyrites and so on, to get the right blends led the heart of his industry. I know that too, because I have a current, just finished part two student who has just done literally his own thesis on the chemical researches of Wedgwood and has spent a good bit of his time uh, both in Birmingham Museum where documents are and at the Wedgwood factory at Barlaston where all of Wedgwood's original laboratory notebooks are. So that is very, very recent material for me. But this fascination with earths and minerals and commercial properties. Then you get into the 19th century. Now, by this time, you're starting to have the emergence of chemistry as we recognize it. In the period of Priestley and Lavoisier in the late 18th century, neither of them had connections, you get the realization that nature was not made up of properties. Nature was made up of specific chemical ingredients. The recognition at first of gases, Hydrogen. Some of which, of course, have been known by Boyle and so on a century earlier, but they haven't recognized their proper role in the structure of nature. Gases. Gases could combine to form salts. And by 1820, 1830, you've got in the round the basic understanding of nature as we have it today. Hydrogen, <coughs> oxygen, carbon, various others in different weightings and bondings. This is, of course, yet before the invention of the periodic table. Mendeleev's work lies 40 years into the future in the 1860s. And, of course, nobody can yet give exact weightings to these chemical substances. But their presence is now understood. What you now start to find is active concerns, not just with mineral chemistry, which had been there for centuries, but what is the nature of living things? Now, were living things, or what we would now call organic compounds, somehow or other different from mineral compounds, 
or rather just more complex forms of mineral compounds. Now, one central figure here, of course, is the German Justus von Liebig at Gießen, and one man in Oxford who is a great, great admirer of him, and this is Charles Giles Bridal Dominic of Modern. Charles Giles Bridal Dominic, born in 1791, fellow of Magdalen, he lived in Magdalen most of his life from being an undergraduate and dying there, became professor of medicine at one stage, physician to the Radcliffe Infirmary, didn't really like dealing with human beings, he found plants and animals much more continued to work with, um, Sharadian professor of botany, it was he who really made the University of Botanical Gardens what they are by spending £4,000 of his own money on the glass houses and things of this sort, a Sharadian professor, but also, too, an investigator of organic substances. In his laboratories in the back of Morden, and they were in the old coach houses in Morden, where, of course, the new Morden building that stands, he starts to do experiments on organic substances, probably from as early as 1815, 1820, something like that. He also built himself a house directly across the road in the Botanical Gardens, and then took an even bigger land there. He starts to look at the nature of organic materials. Now, chemists at this period are trying to analyse the nature of things like blood, urine, milk, things which, of course, had an immediate medicinal application. And Daubeny is active in this. But also Daubeny's interest not only in chemistry, but in medicine, and also botany are inextricably connected. He was a student, for instance, on the nature of the chemistry of plant growth and made fundamental experiments on the role of nitrates in plants. Of course, asking that age-old question, why do plants grow out of decaying walls? What is it in a decaying wall that will sustain a plant? He starts to cultivate plants in small aquatic environments with no soil but then starts to put chemical substances in the water and finds that nitrates are particularly good. It had already been discovered by other chemists by this period that what we broadly call fertilizers were rich in nitrate materials. They were also realizing to as well that as old mortar in buildings was often actually contained excrement mixed in with water. This was another reason why plants grew out of the side of buildings. But this is now coming together. Then Dorbany, who was a wealthy man, takes a lease on a chunk of land on the north side of the Thames, at the bottom of what is now Fairacres Road, off Ifley Road. And here he establishes an experimental garden, where he has more space to do as he likes than in the botanical gardens. There he does fundamental works on chemical fertilizers, bone meal, and a variety of substances. He is deeply concerned with agricultural chemistry and the applications of organic chemistry to plant growth. Daubeny starts to do very, very major work in Oxford. And Daubeny also does something else. We often bear in mind that many of these people have portmanteau interests. Daubeny was fascinated in the nature of volcanoes. At a time, of course, when explorers were discovering more and more of them around the world, and especially one event had riveted volcanology into the minds of Western European scientists. The disintegration of the Sumatran island of Tambora in 1812. Perhaps the world's first ever properly recognized supervolcano. Off it went, bang. 
It created peculiar sunsets for several years afterwards, killed an unknown number of people, and the question is, why did it go off? Germany develops an idea that all volcanoes, especially at say the Sumatran ones, and volcanoes in South America, and places that are all near water. Does this mean, therefore, that under the Earth's surface, there are large areas, or vast beds, of unoxidized chemicals? And hence, when you have some kind of split or crack in the Earth's surface, water pours into it in the seabed, gets at these unoxidized chemicals. They start to release vast quantities of CO2. The gas must have been identified. Those it was known that CO2 came out of volcanic eruptions, create enormous pressure that yes, would blow up, such as Tambora. And what, and what in fact he does in his book, Dormany, 1828, Active and Extinct Volcanoes of the World, puts forth this chemical theory of volcanic action. Because also, too, you see at this time, chemists, geologists, <coughs> and experimentalists were very, very uncertain about what the Earth was like inside. Was the Earth hot inside? Was it not getting hotter and hotter the further down we went? Or was heat purely generated in the sort of surface ring? You could have had a temperate interior, but heat generated in a sort of surface ring by water getting to unoxidized strata. This becomes a serious subject of interest in Oxford. And also, too, with Dorbany's friend, Canon William Buckland in Christchurch, who was the first religious reader of geology, the greatest field geologist of his day. These two men were apparently spectacular eccentrics by any stretch of the imagination as well. But their ideas on the structure of the earth, the chemical nature of the interior, and how water relating to this core could produce seismic activity. Now, I've touched the surface of chemistry in Oxford over a period of 200 odd years. I realise, of course, I have only touched the surface. But what I'd like to do now is to show you one or two slides with a few portraits of some of these individuals to get some idea of what they look like. But could I now have the... Oh, I think I just moved this forward. And then... Now, do I get total downwards? Power on. Ah! What do I do about curtains? Ah, thank Club. And to look at that face, I think you can tell 
He was a genial and a remarkably uh, broad-minded figure, who certainly he was, and had the capacity for bringing many disparate individuals together with this new idea of what they called experimental philosophy. One of his greatest pupils was Sir Christopher Wren, shown here, of course, in the portrait of Hank in the Sheldonian, um, across the river, and of course, in Paul's across the river, shown here completely architecturally, but nonetheless with a telescope and a globe, indicating, of course, his former distinguished career as a professor of astronomy. Unfortunately, there are no asphyxiated dogs included on this picture. This is the famous airport. Um, the original apparatus is about three feet high, and I may say, if you go into the Museum of the History of Science in Broad Street, in the 1920s, a perfect working replica was built. You see the 15-inch or so diameter globe at the top, the various stopcocks for controlling the air, the collar at the top whereby you could put experiments inside, and the handle by which you could evacuate the vessel. Um, Hooke tells us that you could produce a pretty good vacuum in three minutes with this device. He also says, too, that to maintain the seal, they used to pour salad oil into all the working parts as a way of trying to get a seal in the days, of course, when you really could not machine metal to the kind of tolerances that you can today. This is, I'm sorry, this is back to front, this is John Mayer. The man who did the first volumetric experiment with candles and with mice, determining that breathing and burning took the same volumetric part out of any one given measure of air. And this is Robert Plot, the great analyst of water and earths and so on. Very genial looking chap, he looks as though he's had far more hot dinners than he needed. <laughs> And this is the rough charming Charles Giles Bridal Daubeny. Um, there are a lot of pictures of Daubeny. I own about five photographs of him. This is in Bordlin. On each one, his waistcoat buttons get tighter and tighter. He became virtually spherical by the time of his death. It was also to an assiduous tramp, at least as a young man, and used to spend every long vacation geologizing and digging up earths and minerals all over Europe. Now I'm trying to find the lights here. I just keep pressing this for something else. Well, there, ladies and gentlemen, I've um, given you a very rapid. Uh, scamper through these related chemical disciplines in Oxford. And I've been glad to take any questions you may want to ask.